open meetings, by listening to each other, talking to each other, or working with each other. I remember uh, years ago, my wife and I wanted to put up wallpaper, and somebody told us the fastest way to do work partly to work on wallpaper together. We're here living proof that that's not necessarily true. So, listening to each other, talking with each other, even working with each other on wallpaper, uh, and giving these things are the things that build relationships. Even our relationship with Jesus grows as we listen, talk, work, and share with Him. Working for the Chicago Tribune as a reporter, Lee Strobel was assigned to a report uh, on the struggles of an inner city family uh, at Christmas time. And so, as a devout atheist, uh, that was really a kind of years not really a conduct, uh, but he was surprised, mildly surprised, at the family's attitude despite their circumstances. The Delgados, 60 year old, and her two granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny, had been burned out of their roach-infested apartment and were now living in a tiny two-room apartment on the west side of Chicago. Lee Strobel writes that, as I walked into their apartment, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and one handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and her 13-year-old sister Jane owned only one protein dress apiece one thin gray sweater. The female. When they walked a half mile of school through the biting cold, Lydia would wear the sweater for the first part of the way, and then she would shift it to her shimmering sister for the rest of the way. But despite their poverty, and the painful arthritis they kept perfected from working at all, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced that he had not abandoned them. Lee Strobel says, I've never sensed despair or self-pity in her heart. In fact, instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. Well, completed his article and went about his business as a reporter. Uh, but Christmas Eve arrived and he found himself thinking about the Delgados and their family and, and how their situation was. And so he, he uh, decided to go visit them to see how they were doing. In the middle of the stormy day, he went to their house and when he arrived, he was amazed at what he saw. Readers of this article said 
this body to the family being an overwhelming factor. There, there was in all kinds of domain facilities in the apartment. Uh, once inside, Strobel uh, encountered new furniture, appliances, rugs, a large Christmas tree, stacks of brass presents, bags of food, a large selection of warm winter clothing. The readers have even donated a generous amount of cash. But it wasn't a gift that got the trouble. An atheist standing in the middle of Christian generosity. It was the family's response to these gifts. In his words, he said, As surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away most of their newfound wealth. When I asked Perfecta why she was writing at her hoping English, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. He says, that blew me away. If I had been in their position at that time in my life, I would have been holding everything. So he asked Professor what he thought about the generosity of the people who had given and, and sent all those things and her response to Mason. What she said was, this is wonderful. This is very good. We did nothing to deserve this. It's a gift from God. But she added, it's not his greatest gift. No, we celebrate tomorrow. That is Jesus. To her, the child in the manger, he says, was the undeserved gift that meant everything. More than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. And at that moment, he said, something inside me wanted desperately to know this Jesus. Because, in a sense, I saw him in Perfecta, her daughter, granddaughter. They had peace despite poverty. Well, I, he says, had anxiety despite plenty. They knew the joy of generosity while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual while I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had. Or he concludes more accurately for the one they knew. Think about that. This is a family with nothing. Well, not quite. They had they had a home. They had a two-room apartment on the west side of Chicago. And a handful of rice. They had more than nothing. So the question I want to ask is, how can very poor people become 
genuinely generous people. Paul, the apostle, first century missionary, wrote about that kind of generosity in his letter to the Philippians, the Jesus followers in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a wealthy Roman colony uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, which meant that the citizens of that city, of the city of Philippi, were also considered citizens of Rome itself. So they had special privileges and rights that were not granted to people who did not have Roman citizenship. But as we're soon going to discover, these Jesus followers gave to help Paul frequently. And he thanked them for the kind generosity in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. Please follow along with me up here on the screen or in your Bibles, on your phones or tablets, whatever you prefer. Here it is, Philippians chapter 4. He's heading towards the end of his his letter to them, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. One day, Already, I want you to know, I highlighted this on purpose. This is part of the secret of genuine generosity. Learning to be content, whatever the circumstances. You guys always say, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. But just pause. He was writing this from a Roman banker. We stay prison. You know, this, this is one of the prison officials. That's what theologians say. Uh, in prison, as a completist, I visited prison. Not a nice place to be, but it's not a dungeon. You, uh, yeah, maybe, okay, so what about a dungeon? Okay, uh, it's not a place that they would like to, you know, stay. But, so Paul's writing this from a place of, of uh, one, what it is to be a need. By, by the way, one of the ways the Roman Empire saves money is uh, if you're a prisoner, you better have family and friends who are going to bring you stuff. Because we're not going to waste money on feeding you, clothing you. That's your family's job. That's your friend's job. You don't have friends and family? Oh, well, that's a bummer. Well, there's thugs there. Well, that's just one less person we have to watch. That's where he was. Yeah, odds are not good that you're going to find a guy ready to share. But anyway, so here he is. He's here a place of need. But they have provided for him. And he goes on to say, I've learned the secret. In case you didn't get for the first time, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He said about it, whether I'm in jail or free. I've learned the secret of being content. What is, 
by helping people. You are the leader of the I want to be credited to your account if you're helping I received folks spoken and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from a pastor of Isaac. When you send things out there, you want to make sure it arrives the same as the book copy. It wasn't really a Pony Express. You had to send it by hand. And then it says, in things you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. I want this to be on your pleasing to God. God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Jesus Christ. In context, it means when you give, when you've learned to be content when you give, God takes care of you. In whatever way you see fit. When you set me in a Roman dungeon, He's still taking care of you in the Roman Senate. If you need to do well, he's taking care of you there. You tend to think that the only time God takes care of you is when he's doing well. So, sermon of the sentence. Genuine generosity gives with no expectation of return. Genuine generosity gives with no expectation of return. Genuine generosity reflects God's grace. God gives His love to you regardless of how you respond. God loves the deepest, darkest, most sinful person you can think of. And He loves the saints. And He doesn't love the saints more. And he loves the deepest, darkest sinner. He longs for the deepest, darkest sinner to turn to him. He will throw a huge party in heaven when it happens. But he loves them with the same love that he loves the saints and us. He does not bless you to buy your love. That is. That's, that's the lie coming right out of the mouth of Satan. If you want to go back to Job, that's what Satan said to God about Job. Well, of course he likes you. Of course he's faithful to you. Look at all the stuff you gave him. Take it away. He's going to curse you. God says, no, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. He doesn't bless us to buy our love. Love is his makeup. Love is his nature. Love is his character. The more you accept his love, then the more natural genuine generosity is going to become for you. Genuine generosity gives with no expectation of return. When you give to a person or to an organization, genuine generosity gives to God through them. Genuine generosity recognizes first and foremost who Paul is. It may be in my hand right now, but it's not mine, it's his. 
And if he asks me to give it, then, well, it's his stuff. It's his time. It's, it's his. Whatever he asks for me, it's his. I need to hang on to it. Maybe once he can be the one to hand it off, then I hand it off. He's already given you everything. He's already given you everything. There's no reason to expect him to give you more. He can't get more than everything. Think about it for a moment. If he's already given you everything, he can't give you anymore. So let's set genuine generosity apart from other ways of giving. Well, the first thing is genuine generosity is a sign of real faith. When you give with genuine generosity, you give in a way that signals that you're, you're, you're the deepest part of your respect to God. God you cannot see takes care of you in ways you have no idea how it's going to work out. Genuine generosity is a sign of faith. Faith is one of the pieces of contentment. How can I say it's okay no matter what it is? Because I trust the one who's taking care of me. It's the only way I can get to that place. Having more than you need or less than you need doesn't matter when you believe that Jesus is going to take care of you no matter what. Genuine generosity lives with no expectation of return. But genuine generosity is inspired by hope. Hope is another one of the secrets of contentment. It's, it's a mindset of anticipation that looks at the limitless possibilities of what God can do and wonders for what. What's he going to do next? Take care of me. I want that to sink in. Because that's not the way we live. We live in worry and anxiety over what we have. Not in hope and wonder what he's going to do next. Possibilities are limitless. This is the God who can do infinitely more than I could ask or imagine. The possibilities are truly limitless. I have no idea what He's going to do, but I can trust Him and I can hope and give and anticipate. He will take care of me. I trust him to do that. Genuine generosity gives with no expectation of return. Genuine generosity is filled with the freedom of love. When we know that we have freely received God's love, His infinite love, His unconditional love, His love that is beyond all of our dreams and imaginations, we are empowered to freely give love in whatever way we need to. We're free to love people that are unlovable. Genuine generosity gives with no expectation of return. Genuine generosity cannot be measured by percentages, amounts, or in any other way. It's not a matter of saying, well, I gave 10%, now I'm good, I'm generous. 
gambling generosity says, well, all of it, David, we ask for all of it, and we give it. It's not a matter of I do so much. Okay, can I just say a question? I went to college in Indiana, which will remain in my life. How will several of you know where I went? Anybody here? And I probably know more about how schools work than I should, because my parents were on staff and then the faculty there. Uh, one day, they. Years ago, they invited us to come to the Christian Ministry Center because we were going to hang a picture of them in the hallway. And I flippantly said, Oh, did you finally give enough money to get your picture hung in the wall, on the wall? I didn't. I was being sarcastic, but that's the way I am sometimes. And my dad said, Yes. Can't have your picture hanging in the wall because of who you are or what you've done and how much you've given. Okay, that's not genuine generosity. That is the way our world works, but in God's kingdom it's different. It's not a matter of an amount, you know. You don't know. Okay, I've given this much now. I'll prove I'm generous. Two million dollars, and I gave away a million. That means I'm generous. Not if God was asking for one and a half. Genuine generosity is a manifestation of the of a soul that is so surrendered in love to God, for God, and, and others that wants to give what He does. And giving to God for others is done in this fashion. It's done out of love, motivated purely and solely by love. Love comes back to the giver from God through others. It's so surprisingly extraordinary and so completely free that we often end up wondering, why didn't I give more to them? about generosity, the more you practice it, the more you want to do it. Genuine generosity gives with no expectation of return. Tim Keller is an author. He wrote a book called The Advocate. And then he tells a story uh, that I'm going to use and then adapt for, for what we're talking about today. He says, just imagine, now this is going to be a stretch for most of us, if not all of us, Imagine that you're a billionaire. Okay, take a moment to do that. You're, you're a billionaire. And you have three ten dollar bills in your in your pocket. I, I have no idea what my next question is, but it's just pretend it looks like three ten bills. And you took a cab someplace just from New York. What else are they gonna do? Even the cab is trouble. But if you're a billionaire, you're probably going to take the cab, right? And, and, and with an $8 fare, then you give the taxi driver a $10 bill telling him to change. Later in the day, you reach in your pocket and realize there's only one 10 left in your pocket. You started with three, you gave one to the taxi cab driver, and now you only have, you've lost one somewhere. 
If you put in 30 or 40 or even 50 hour work week, you expect to receive a paycheck at the end. It hopefully benefits retirement plans. And if you put in a 50 hour work week, I sure hope so. If you're not, I hope you're looking. Because there are places that will pay you and give you benefits for 50 hours a week. It makes sense to expect a return on your investment of time or money. It makes sense. Where would farmers be if they didn't believe this? Now, how many farmers would go plant a field with a crop of potatoes or beets or corn or beans or anything else if they didn't expect that they'd be able to harvest way more than they put into it? The way the economy of this world works, it's okay. But I'm pointing it out because the economy of Jesus' kingdom is based on generous grace. A completely different way of doing things. It's giving without expecting a return of any kind because I don't need a return. You already own it all. The economy of this kingdom moves towards no exchange. In God's kingdom, your primary motivation goes from what am I going to receive to love for Jesus and the people he loves. This is everybody in case you're trying to figure out where the line was drawn. You love everybody. All of us. Genuine generosity gives you gives with no expectation of return. So we're going to kind of summarize the, the series now for a moment. You can learn to live with Jesus through Bible reading that transforms your thinking and your acting. And your motivation for getting into the Bible develops should develop from your love for Jesus and the desire to become more like Him. You know, one thing we know about Him is another thing to be like Him. That should be our motivation for getting into the Bible. You can learn to live with Jesus through, through prayer that connects you with the Holy Spirit where you feel safe and close to Him. And your motivation for communicating with Jesus can shift from what you're going to get from Him in terms of answers to connecting with Him because you love Him. Getting answers to prayer is not bad. It's just not the whole story. You know, you can connect with Him because you love Him. You can learn to live with Jesus through service to others and for people in need. And that, that service to them can transmit His love to them and expresses your love to Jesus. Your motivation for helping people in need leads to Cain for being a nice person because, you know, nice people do that. Pretty sure when we were talking about the people who sent gifts to protect us, 
her family, the Dadados, that there was a large portion of them that weren't Christians, but they were really nice people. And that's okay, nice people can get there. If your motivation from giving will move from being a nice person and doing what you think other people will expect you to do to simply loving Jesus and the people who died for us, regardless of what happens. You see, the bottom line in learning to love Jesus, learning in our relationship, the bottom line but learning to live with Jesus demands an alteration to your motivation. In a letter to another church, Paul put it this way in the second letter to the Corinthians. He said, Jesus' love has the first and last word in everything we do. Our firm decision is to work from this focus center. Jesus died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. Jesus' love has the first and the last word in everything we do. An alteration to our ingrained motivations like this calls for a new effect. Willpower won't do it. You can't get up in the morning and look yourself in the eye in the mirror and go, I will do everything. I will love for Jesus today. You do it. It probably won't last. Well, you may be good. It might last 10 minutes. Then you might do something that's not motivated by love, but for something else. You understand what I'm saying? If we're going to get to the place where we can say with Paul, Jesus' love motivates everything we do, that the first and last word is everything we do, we're going to get to that place to take a miracle. There's something broken in us that needs healing. And only the Holy Spirit can alter our motivation until we are at this place where we can say, like Paul, Jesus loves as the first and last word in everything we do. Motivation and alteration so that Jesus' love has the first and last word in everything we do. So, you're free to stand where you are. If you want to come and put in the front here and pray, you can repeat the words that I use, or make use your own words, pray. But if you raise your hand, 